Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for this opportunity to be with you uh, today and in the goodness of God next Sunday. Now, we're beginning an Advent series here uh, in Hamilton Baptist this morning. Over the next three Sundays, as Nathan said, we're going to be looking at elements of the King. And this morning, we're going to the Old Testament under the heading, The King is Coming. So I want you to turn with me, please, to a rather obscure and uh, odd passage, you may think, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7 together. 2 Samuel 23, 1 to 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, and they are burned up where they lie. This is the word of the Lord. Last words are often long remembered. Sometimes they are cynical, like Winston Churchill's last words. I'm bored with it all. I mean, imagine living a life like his and just being bored at the end of the day. That's quite an indictment, isn't it? Sometimes last words are funny. Spike Milligan's alleged to have said on his deathbed, I told you, you, I, told you I was ill. And sometimes they're poignant. Don't die like I did, said George Best. But in scripture, when we come to last words, they are invariably significant. Think about the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. And so we turn this morning to the last words of one of the Bible's greatest superheroes, who, as the chorus has helpfully reminded us, was made of the same stuff as you and me, David, the great king of Israel, the singing shepherd boy from nowhere who became Israel's greatest king. And as the end of his life draws near, it's fitting that David's final words come in the form of a song or a poem. And we'll see that this song or this poem is actually a prophecy that reaches far beyond his lifetime and probably far beyond his wildest imagination or his wildest dreams. In fact, it reaches so far into the future that it reaches into our lifetimes here, today, all these years later, and beyond us. Now, David, of course, earlier in his own life, and I'm not going to do a whole resume of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you'll be pleased to know, in the next two minutes, but we do need a wee bit of context here 
as we think our way through this passage. David, earlier in his own life, had himself received a prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When Nathan, not the one here, Nathan the prophet of Israel, had come to David and explained to him, your house, that's your dynasty, your house, like the house of Windsor, you know, the royal house, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan, Israel's prophet, had come to David and had given him this prophecy. And what Nathan was telling him was that God had a purpose that through the descendants of David, there would come one who would sit on David's throne, whose kingdom would never fail, and whose kingdom would last not for a thousand years or ten thousand years, but forever. And so the king who is promised through the line of David is one who will make it possible for the world to be ruled and governed and experienced and lived in in the way that God originally intended. Because we are created to live under God's rule. But by the time we get to 2 Samuel 23, our passage this morning, all of that was a long time ago. A lot of water, and some of it very dirty water, had flowed under the bridge of David's life since then. It's now towards the end of his life. Uh, we know he's round about the age of 70 years old. Some of you this morning, as I peer out here under the lights, might be in that territory. I'm not quite there yet, but I am scarily in my seventh decade but some of you are in the region of 70, and there are usually two kinds of people in that demograph from my experience. Firstly, you've got the cohort who have decided that their reason for continued existence is to look backwards on the good old days. Wasn't it like that when I was here as a boy in Hamilton Baptist? It's changed a lot since then. The great glory days of the great people of the past. You know, it was great back then, wasn't it? You know, you remember that four Yorkshiremen sketch? Or am I not allowed to talk about that kind of thing here? You know, um, back in the day, you know, they didn't know they had it good. We were brought up in this and that. And, oh, you were lucky I was brought up in a cardboard box, all that kind of thing. You know, if only you lived back then, if only we'd have known back then how things were. Oh, it's not like that nowadays. So there's one group like that in the kind of 70 and plus age group. And I suppose in my own demographic too. I'm guilty of a bit of that stuff myself at times. But then secondly, there's another group of septuagenarians who are always looking forward, always full of anticipation, even at that stage in their life. There have been many twists and turns on the journey of their life, but now here they are at this point in their life, and they're still looking forward, and they're still saying, now, what's ahead of us? Now, how are the grandchildren doing? Now, what's happening in your life, and what's happening in your life? And are you still working, and are you still doing this, and how, what's going on, and what's going to happen next? And essentially, that's what David's doing here. He's a septuagenarian who's looking forward still at this stage in his life. Well, you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, well, David, that's all fine and good, but that's thousands of years ago what we're talking about here. It's a long time ago. I'm only 17 or I'm only 26 or I'm only whatever age I am. Or you might even only be 12 or 14. I think they've maybe gone 
so far. But you might be in your teens or in your early 20s and you're thinking, what difference does it make? What was happening to David, the king of Israel, for me as a teenager living in South Lanarkshire in Hamilton in 2022? Well, here's the thing. The promise made to King David and this passage that we're looking at this morning is the answer to your life. It's the answer to your 10-year-old life, your 20-year-old life, your 50, 60, 70, 80, even 90-year-old life. The promise that was made to King David, you see, is a promise of hope for the entire world. Not just Hamilton even, not just Scotland, but the entire world. Because the story of the kingdom is the story of the truth of the gospel. It's the fact that this king who is promised through the line of David is the one who makes it possible for the world to be the way God originally made it. And we know that God made it good. In fact, he made it really good. Really, really good. But it's not good now, is it? I I try to avoid the news these days. I don't know how you feel. It's broken. It's messy. It's filled with disappointment and pain and hurt and suffering. People end up in hospital. Folk get dementia. It's awful. And so here you find that the answer to that understandable longing for how things ought to be, because intuitively we know that things ought not to be this way. Here we find the answer to that longing in 2 Samuel, because it points us not just to David and his life, but to Jesus, the coming king. In fact, when we sing a carol, and if I'd been a bit more savvy, I would have shocked you all and got the band, I'd have got us to sing a carol this morning. That would have been interesting, wouldn't it, in the middle of November? I'm one of these people that doesn't like Christmas music at all before the 1st of December. I don't know how you feel. But we could have and maybe should have sung O Little Town of Bethlehem this morning. Why? Because there's a line in that carol that says this, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, in in him, in the king. And as we recognize the birth of Jesus signaling hope, we recognize that it signals hope for the whole world, not just for then, not just for now, but for all the years. And so let's come to the text. And the first thing we notice from the text is that these are the last words of David. David's saying, if you want to have a key to make up, uh, uh, to open up uh, what my life's been about, then listen up. The last time I was in this building was for the lovely funeral service of Mrs. Dyer a few weeks ago. And as we gathered together to pay tribute to her memory, many stories were told, many highlights were given of her life that summarized them just in that 15, 20-minute slot that her son Craig uh, gave to us. And what David's saying is, as I look back in my life, here is the summary of it. Here are the highlights, and here's what I want you to take from my life. The oracle of David, firstly. 
the text tells us. Do you notice? The oracle of David. Well, oracle is, is a big word. I mean, it could have just said the, the words of David. But that's not what the text says. The text says the oracle of David. Now, oracle is something really big, really bold. It's a declaration. It's a declaration from God. David is saying, I am making a declaration from God here. God's own word from David's own lips. Now, that's a great mystery, isn't it? As, as human people speak, as Paul writes his letters, as Peter writes his letters, or as Luke writes his gospel, or as Amos writes his prophecy, or as David writes his last words here, it's God who is speaking. And that changes the dynamic right away, doesn't it? So every time you open your Bible, you are hearing God speaking. I'm always wary of people who say to me things like, the Lord spoke to me. I'll say, which passage were you reading? Because that's the only place I can be absolutely sure that I am hearing the voice of God. So as we unpick this text, I want to hang our reflections on four words. Now I'm doing that for a reason. It's so you can keep track of where we are on the timeline and so you know when we're getting close to finishing. The first word is identity. The second word is prophecy. The third word is history. And the fourth word is destiny. So let's look firstly at identity. David says, there it is in verse 1, this is who I am. Well, who are you, David? Firstly, I am, do you notice, the son of Jesse. David, son of Jesse. Now that doesn't sound particularly striking, does it? After all, who was Jesse? Well, what David is acknowledging here is his humble origin. If they did a yearbook back then when David was at school, he wouldn't have had a lot of stuff against his picture. I look after sheep. I'm a shepherd boy. Probably no one would have written beside David's picture, most likely to succeed, most likely to become king of Israel. No, he's from Jesse. But this is actually fantastic stuff. I mean, everyone's from somewhere, right? I mean, I'm, I'm David, son of Drew from Les Mahego. Just so you know that I haven't forgotten my roots. And that's remarkably unremarkable, isn't it? But everyone's from somewhere. In David's case, his ancestry, though, goes back through the book of Ruth, goes all the way back to Abraham. In fact, his genealogy is such that if you look at Matthew chapter 1, where it's recorded, you'll see that the most significant name after the name of Abraham is the genealogy that leads us right back to the Lord Jesus himself. So the significance of who I am and what I am, although I may seem insignificant within myself, you see, is entirely tied up in God's purpose and plan for my life. David was a nobody, but he became a somebody because he was part of God's plan, do you see? He was in God's line of things. And you might be here this morning thinking, well, I'm the equivalent of David, son of Drew from Les Mahego. You know, who am I? Well, if you're in God's plan, you're part of the greatest story in the universe. And you've got an incredible, as we'll see, royal destiny. 
Secondly, he says, I was raised on high. Do you notice? I was the man exalted. He was the keeper of sheep, and yet he found himself on the throne of Judah and Israel. Now, back in chapter 2 of Samuel, of 2 Samuel, David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up? Shall I go up? Shall I take my place now? And the Lord says to him, go up. And we read that David became greater and greater and greater. And he knew that his greatness was because the Lord had established him. And so he says, here's the deal. I'm the son of Jesse, but I'm the man who has been raised on high. I am the man exalted by the Most High to this role of king. Thirdly, he says, I am the anointed of the God of Jacob. I'm the man anointed by the God of Jacob. Think back to 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he was anointed by Samuel. And then notice how God is described there. The God of Jacob. Jacob's name, what was his other name? What was his, what was his, um, his other name, Jacob? Uh, well, his other name, his alias, was Israel, wasn't it? Israel. So Jacob's name is a, is a synonym, an alias for Israel. In other words, He's the father of the nation. And that's very significant. What was God's word to Jacob? In Genesis 35, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. That was what God said to Jacob on his deathbed. In other words, David's life is significant, not because of any human achievement, but his life is significant because of something God has done in his life. You see, the significance of who you are and what you are is entirely, as I said earlier, related to God's plan and purpose and not so much in your own personal achievements. So you might feel like you've come from nowhere and you might feel that you're doing nothing. But your personal achievements are not the thing that define you ultimately. Your relationship with God and his work in your life is the defining feature of who you are. Fourthly, then, he says, I am the sweet psalmist of Israel, or if you like, I am the hero of Israel's songs, the singer of songs. That was one of the reasons Saul got so annoyed with David, wasn't it? It was one of the reasons why he became so popular. He was the Jason Donovan or the Donny Osmond, if you're old enough to remember him, or the Justin Bieber or whatever of his day. I write the songs that make the young girls dance. I write the songs that make the soldiers brave. I am David. I write the songs. That was David back then. That's what he's saying. He was, at the, he was at the heart of the very songs and psalms that we still sing today. And the passage that Nathan read. And here's what he's saying. Here's my dad. I was nothing. I got raised up. I was anointed by God. And people sang a lot of songs. Many of them I wrote. And most of them I feature in. That's my identity. That's me. I'm David. Now notice in verse 2. The prophecy. Our second word. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Now as I speak to you this morning, my words are carried to you by my breath. You can't speak without exhaling. Have you ever thought about that? If I couldn't breathe, I couldn't form words in a way that you could hear them. So when David speaks... He says it's by the breath of the Lord. And the word breath in Hebrew is the word ruach, which is the same word used for the spirit of the Lord. 
So as we think about the spirit of God and, and we think about the word of God, the word of God is breathed out through the spirit. And as God breathes out, we hear his word. So when we hear God's word, we are hearing the essence of God himself. Do you see? Just as, as I breathe out, you can hear me speak. So as you hear God speak, you're hearing and breathe through his spirit. And that's what David's saying here. A very basic level, he's saying, I don't make this stuff up. I'm addressing you with the very oracle of God. The word of God. Now, in Acts 2.29, when we come into the New Testament, as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he picks this whole thing up. He refers to David's prophecy. And here's what he says. Brothers, I say to you with confidence, this is Peter now, about the patriarch David. So here's Peter in the New Testament speaking about David in the Old Testament. Being a prophet, this is Peter about David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on a throne. In other words, David was trusting in the promise of 2 Samuel 7, knowing, listen to this, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to death, nor his flesh to see this, uh, corruption. That's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable that Peter says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Peter says David spoke about that. That's Peter's understanding of these texts. And, and what he saw was that the Christ was not abandoned to death. In other words, he didn't see corruption in the grave. So David writes the words as a prophecy, which Peter then explains, and you've got to understand that Peter's saying, you've got to understand, people, that what David was going on about there, whether he grasped it or not, was the fact that there was going to be somebody who would come after him who would actually achieve what the psalm, from which it's from, Psalm 16, actually describes. He won't abandon me to decay, and he won't let his Holy One see corruption. Now, who is it that wasn't abandoned in the grave to decay, and who was it who died and didn't see corruption? The Lord Jesus. That brings us then to the word itself. Well, what is this word that is spoken? Well, there it is in verses 3b and 4. It's just a couplet. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. There's the word. Now that just reads like a proverb, doesn't it? It looks fairly, fairly boring, fairly dull, fairly underwhelming. In other words, it's almost as though on a first read, David's saying, well, if justice rules, everyone will have a nice day in the universe. Is that what we're dealing with here? Motherhood and apple pie? Well, in the original Hebrew, the translation's actually better rendered this way. A ruler over the human race will arise, a just ruler... And will exercise his dominion in the spirit of the fear of God. Now what David's prophesying here isn't just if anyone does a good job being king then everyone will have a nice afternoon. That's not what he's saying. David didn't get to this point in his life and just give us a few proverbs. He's pointing to the ruler, he says, who will rule justly over men. He will rule over men in righteousness. Do you notice that there in verse 3? And in Hebrew, that literally means he will rule justly over Adam. The Hebrew interpretation of the word men or mankind is 
Adam. He will rule justly over Adam, Adam being humanity. So he's speaking about a ruler who will rule over all of humanity. So who rules over humanity? Well, it's not David. He rules over Judea. He rules over Israel. Of course, there are other rulers all around him at that time, people who rule over Egypt and various other places. But no, 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 no. There's a ruler coming who will rule over the whole of humanity, do you see? And when he does, he will rule justly and he will execute justice and righteousness. And his rule will be a perfect expression of God's rule. Do you notice? He will rule in the fear of God. So David's speaking better than he knows, which is what every prophet does. Every prophet speaks into his own time, but he speaks way beyond his own time, and the fulfillment of his words are far greater than anything he can ever imagine. He anticipates a day when there will be one who will come who could rule over humanity, have dominion over the ends of the earth, be the one who presides over a kingdom that will never come to an end, that transcends time, transcends distance, transcends nationhood, transcends gender, transcends everything. That's why I said to you at the beginning that the answer to your life is in this passage. The answer to your life is in a king who will come. And what will it be like when he comes? Well, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? And so he says in verse 4, well, let me give you a kind of trailer for what that might be like. Let me give you a teaser trailer for what it might be like. Like the dawning of the morning light, he says. Now, remember, David didn't have uh, video uh, technology to do some kind of fancy uh, trailer for, for the movies. So he had to use words and imagery that he... That, that were special to them and special to him and, and evocative and made, made you feel like you wanted to be there or wanted to see that, right? That's what a trailer does. You get the snippets, the good bits and the exciting bits and they, I might want to go and see that movie. That's what David's doing here. He says, well, let me give you an inkling. When he rose, it will be like the... This, it will be like a morning light you've never seen morning before. Have you ever sat and watched the sunrise? Have you ever actually seen the sunrise over the horizon? And just that incredible measured pace as it, the sky turns a different colour. Just a few uh, months ago, uh, my wife and I were in Tunisia and we had a, a, a room that looked out onto the sea. And we had to get up really early one morning to get the plane home and watch the sun coming up over the horizon. Incredible. The power of that. Just the, the, the magnitude of it and, and the, the fact that this happens every day. In the goodness of God. It would be like the dawning of the morning light. And you know what it's like when you're waking up in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I don't know. Any, any morning people here? You make me sickeningly ill. You morning people. I mean, it takes me till about 11 o'clock, three coffees, and then I might manage a hello, how are you? But it's more likely to be a bit of a grunt and a moan. But anyway, mornings, allegedly, <laughs> are those times when you're waking up and you think, hmm, I'm, I'm still alive. Still alive, that feeling of life again, life again, life to be lived. And that's the feeling. Only life like you've never known it. Then it will be like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. In other words, it will be warm. You'll be able to take the bins out in your jammies. Now, don't do that in November. You can do, but I don't advise it. Uh, it's going to be like living in the Canaries all the time, right? On the day when this dawn comes, it'll be warm. 
It'll be pleasant. It'll be beautiful. It'll be relaxing. It'll be everything you long for in a day. Every day. And when the rain comes, the rain will make grass to sprout from the earth, he says there, without a hint of thorns and thistles. Now remember, this is the Middle East. Don't know if you've ever been there. It's barren. It is barren. It is not green. It is not like Scotland. It is dry. It's more thorns and thistles than lush lawns. But the rain of this king, David says, will be perfect lawns everywhere you look. Everywhere you look, it'll make, it'll make Augusta National at the Masters look like my back garden. That's how green and good and perfect the lawns will be. It's a prophecy, do you see? It's a prophecy about what life will be like under the rule of this coming king. And it's interesting, isn't it? All the angst on Twitter and social media and the news, every longing, every injustice, every outrage, every, uh, uh, every sense of injustice that people feel, every angst that they have, every cause that they rage against, they're all answered in the coming king. All of them. They're all answered. In him, there's coexistence. People live together no matter their nationality, no matter the color of the skin, no matter the status of their caste, no matter their educational status, no matter their wealth and power. They live together in utter equality in his kingdom. And nobody's unhappy with that. There's no racial discrimination. There's no gender dysphoria in this kingdom. Everybody's completely comfortable and happy the way they are. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's no ecological crisis. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the environment, but don't forget, there's a new one coming. A new heaven and a new earth where everything is right. That's what David says here. Where everything is right. And when you and when we bow our knees before the king who's coming... All that humanity longs for is met in him. You will find in him everything you want, everything you need, everything you're afraid of in the future. You'll find security in him. And this is prophecy, you see. And this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Thirdly then, our third word is history. So in verse 5, David says, Is not my house right with God? So one minute now David's looking forward, now he's looking back, he's looking at his own dynasty. Is not my house right with God? In other words, the certainty of the king who is to come is supported by the existence of David's present tense experience as king. What God is going to do in the future is actually what gives David significance here and now. God's promises about the future, you see, define our present. And it works the other way around. The existence of the dynasty of David is a historical point along the journey that says, look what he did with King David. Well, that's nothing compared to what he's going to do in the future. So what is he doing with David? Well, he's making a name for him. He's giving victory to him. David's administering justice and equity to all the people. But is David a perfect king? Is he a good example of how to do this? Is he a good example of how to rule God's people? Is he? Well, he had his highs, that's for sure. But he also had some massive lows. David, you see, wasn't able to see through his promise to be God's 
great king. And what this actually tells us is that even our foolish choices and in our sinful disobedience, in spite of those, God has not removed us from the unfolding of his purpose. David messed up big time, particularly morally. So he wasn't the perfect king. But he was the king in a covenant relationship with God. And his sin did not remove him from the unfolding purposes of God. And we'll see how that happened just in a second. Because it's not just that God's promises about the future define our present. God's promises in the present guarantee our future. Because do you notice that promise God made to people is an everlasting covenant? David says that in verse 5. Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? In other words, David's saying this. All of my life, all of the things that, that I'm talking about here in this prophecy, everything that's good about me, everything that I hope in began with God. It began with God's initiative. God's the hero of my story. And that's true for me, who messed up many times. And David's saying, it was God who reached out to Abram and called him. It was God who sent Samuel to anoint me when I was a wee boy. It was God who made me king. It was God who raised me up. And he hasn't brought me this far to drown me in a ditch. He hasn't brought me this far to dump me, in spite of my many mistakes. Well, you've made some really bad mistakes, David, really, haven't you? I mean, most people would disqualify you from any uh, position of power on the basis of your personal morals. Yes, I have. Yes, he had. So on what basis does he have confidence that his bad moves haven't taken him out of the running? Where does his confidence lie? Well, his confidence lies in the same place that you and I have and the confidence that we have, that our foolish choices and our sinful disobedience haven't removed us or, or, or excluded us from the, from the unfolding purposes and the grace and goodness of God. We sang about it earlier, when I stumble, when I fall. Not if, when. It's going to happen. So remember that Nathan comes to David at another time in his life after he had sinned so grievously in that moral immoral relationship with Bathsheba and, and, and he encourages David to repent and when David turns away from his sin and acknowledges it before God and asks for forgiveness Nathan says your sin's forgiven now David is not saying here I've done a great job it's no wonder that I've enjoyed this privileged position no he's acknowledging the fact that any good stuff he really did he did on account of God's amazing grace and the keeping power of God in his life was the thing that saw him through to the end of his life. And it's because God had made, do you notice in verse 5, an everlasting covenant with him? And God's promises are an everlasting covenant that lasts forever. Now, the closest we get to covenants in our world is marriage, where two people make a covenant. But that covenant usually only works if both people keep it. And if one person doesn't keep it, then carnage ensues. And often the covenant is broken. There's a really interesting story way back when God makes his covenant with Abram and he gets him to walk through bits of cut meat. We don't have time to go into it. 
But the bottom line on it is that God makes a covenant and he keeps both sides of it. How wild is that? How wild is that? So God makes a covenant with these people. He makes a covenant with us to bless us and love us because he loves us and to bring us into his family. And then, and then, and then he keeps both sides of the covenant because he knows we can't keep our bit. We can't keep our bit. So who kept our bit for us? Jesus. It's remarkable. God doesn't keep you because you're good. He keeps you because he loves you and he's made a promise to keep you forever. He never saved you because you're good and he doesn't keep you on that basis. He saves you and he keeps you because he loves you, because he's made an everlasting promise to you, just like he did to David. The God who saves me is the same God who keeps me and all my fears and failures are swallowed up by his amazing grace. That's what David's saying. That's his history. And that's the story of God's grace through history. And that brings us to our final word, destiny. Our destiny, your destiny. And it's there in the passage in verse 6. Verse 5 and verse 6. Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns. Eternal life or eternal punishment? You see, this is unavoidable. Because the promise of the coming king comes with an unavoidable warning. Opposition to the king is ultimately futile. Evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns. And you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, well, I, don't, I just don't want to believe these things about Jesus. I want to believe what I want to believe and I want to live my life the way I choose to live it. I'm an autonomous individual. I'm an independent thinker. I want, I want things on my terms, not on God's terms. Well, that's an understandable reaction for all of us because it's a sinful reaction. So don't be surprised if that's your first reaction. That's normal for re rebellious people, for people who rebelled against God. We live in darkness. We, we live in the realm of self-assertion, of self-rule, not God's rule, self-rule. And what's true for humanity as a whole is also true for us as individuals. So how are you as a 14-year-old boy going to make your way through the journey of life? How are you as a 19, 23-year-old girl going to manage your way through all of this? And you might be in that space this morning and you might think, well, I've heard this a dozen times. I've heard this loads. I heard it at Sunday school. But you know, I just don't think I have to do anything about it. I'll be fine. And some younger people here today or watching or listening might be thinking, well, my dad's a good guy, you know, he's involved in the church and he goes to the Bible study and my mum, she does kids ministry and she, she does baking for the, for the old folk and, 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 and I, I, I guess I'll be fine. No, you won't. No, you won't. You also need to actually bow your knee to Jesus the King. And you might have been in this church for years and be thinking, I've given all of my life to this church. Yes, you may have done that. But have you bowed your knee to Jesus the King? Are you living under his rule? Or is it a social experiment and a social experience and a set of relationships that just provide you with some support when things are difficult or are you living your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ 
Because however old you are, however young you are, however much or less time you've got left in your life, bowing to Jesus is the only place to find hope. And in rejecting Jesus, David is saying here, your life is utterly worthless. And so the inference is clear. The king is coming. One day we'll meet him as our judge. But that judge has first of all come as our saviour. That's what we're here to celebrate this time of the year. He's come as our saviour first. So that we don't need to meet him as our judge then. That's John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not perish or be cast away but have everlasting life. And simply that means you're on one side or you're on the other. There's no, no middle ground. Often at this time of the year, young people and children will like to watch The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in that land where it's always winter but never Christmas. What a great way of thinking about a fallen world that is, isn't it? Always winter, never Christmas. And C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, got it right when he said there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say to God, your will be done and live under the Lordship of Jesus. And then there are those to whom God says, okay, have it your way. Have it your way. You don't want me, you'll never experience me. And that's the execution of God's judgment. That's why we have the king set before us today, so that today we can fall at his feet and embrace him as our saviour, so that on that day, when we meet him, just as surely as you'll meet me leaving this, this hall this morning, when you meet him face to face, when you see how tall he is, when you see what colour his eyes are, when you look into his face, when you see the scars, you won't be afraid. Because he's your saviour. He's your king not your judge. Amen.